Hello and welcome to Musings on History. Episode 8.1, The Philadelphia Negro. feel to be a problem? This is the pivotal question that underscored many of the works of Dr. William Edward Burkhart Du Bois, the great African-American sociologist, historian, civil rights activist, educator, and author who was born on 23 February 1868 in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, and died on 27 August 1963 in Accra, Ghana. Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois, as he is commonly known, was born in the first generation of Black Americans out of slavery during a crucial time when African Americans were finally free to define their own lives and create their own communities. And the stakes were high because their former masters and other white people in America could only see Blackness as a problem. In his over 30 works, including sociological studies, essays, academic books, biographies, newspapers, fiction books, and even a children's series, Dr. Du Bois analyzed and synthesized Black consciousness, history, and culture in a way that has shaped everything from civic engagement to the study of Black history. Each episode of this series is named after what I consider to be the defining work of a particular era of Dr. Du Bois' long life. This episode is named The Philadelphia Negro after his 1899 sociological study of the African Americans of Philadelphia. Dr. Du Bois was commissioned by the University of Pennsylvania to conduct this study with the intent of identifying social and economic problems that were present in the African American community of Philadelphia. It was the first sociological case study of a Black community in the United States and one of the earliest examples of sociology as a statistically based social science. I have relied on multiple sources for my research of this series, including the Pulitzer Prize winning two-part biography written by author David Levering Lewis. But I would also like to give thanks to the producers and narrators of W.E.B. Du Bois, A Biography in Four Voices, for helping me to shape the outline of this series. The visual biography um, is available for purchase at uh, scribe.org. And I'll put the link of it in the description for this episode. As I've mentioned previously, this series will be the final series in the Musings on History podcast, but I have been bullied by some friends of mine into re-recording some of my older episodes and transitioning the entire podcast to YouTube. Again, I appreciate everyone who has listened, offered advice, donated money, critiqued, and shared my podcast with others. And I wanna give a special thanks to my dearly departed friend, Clifton Brown III, who passed away on 24 April, 2020. Cliff and I were both history buffs and um, he had a particular love for black history. He was the person who first told me about the Encyclopedia Africana. And I had planned to give him the five volume series as a Christmas gift. So I want to dedicate this series to his memory. I love and miss you, Clifton. Chapter one, Great Barrington, Massachusetts. 
Now, as I've already mentioned, William Edward Burghardt Du Bois was born on 23 February 1868 in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. I said 1863 earlier, sorry, 1868. His parents were Alfred and Mary Sylvina Nay Burghardt Du Bois. Mary's family were part of a very small contingent of Black people in the U.S. who were free before the Civil War. Massachusetts, like all other former British colonies in North America, was initially a slaveholding colony. Now, if you recall, the Barbadian-born slave Tituba was one of the women accused of witchcraft in the Salem witch trials, and she was a slave of Taino heritage. Initially, the slaves of New England were primarily of Native American descent, and they were usually war captives, like the Pequot people of Southern Massachusetts, who were decisively defeated in the Pequot War that lasted from July 1636 until September 1638. The Pequot War started as a Native American conflict between the Pequot and the Mohegan people, who were at one time a single socio-political entity. These two groups split into two distinct groups about 100 years prior to first contact with the Puritan English colonists. And by the 1630s, the Pequot and Mohegan people were at war over, well, what else? Land and resources. The Pequot were very aggressive in their expansion efforts at the expense of the Wampanoag, Narragansett, Algonquin, Mohegan, and Lenape peoples. All of these different ethnic groups and and tribal affiliations traded with the earliest European fur traders and colonists, and they were all competing for the land, resulting in a power vacuum. After Eurasian diseases like smallpox decimated native populations, the growing colonies began buying slaves that had been kidnapped from Africa and first brought to the Caribbean, who were then usually sold to colonists in North America. In the 17th century in North America, particularly in the New England colonies, slavery was a more permeable status than it later became in primarily the antebellum South. And if you go back to one of my later episodes in the Christianity series, I talked about how the um, Bacon's Rebellion and the racial codes of Virginia kind of solidified chattel slavery and also made distinct delineations between who was native, who was white, who was black, and how those three groups were allowed to interact with each other because without the elites who mostly lived on the coasts of Virginia and were trying to take all the land, without the elites dictating to everybody else how they should interact, they generally did not see a whole lot of difference between themselves racially. But yeah, African slaves were allowed to buy their freedom and manumission was fairly commonplace. Nonetheless, historians estimate that between 1755 and 1764, the Massachusetts slave population was approximately 2.2% of the total population and the slave population was generally concentrated in the industrial and coastal towns where they worked on the shipyards. The practice of slavery in Massachusetts was ended gradually through the application of case law. There was an unprecedented number of Africans who filed lawsuits for manumission in the years preceding and following the American Revolution. The movie Amistad is an example of that. New England was a a unique jurisdiction in 18th century, that's the 1700s, in North America because enslaved people in Massachusetts 
were occupied a dual legal status of being both property and persons before the law, which entitled them to file legal suits in court. Benjamin Kent, a lawyer living in New England prior to the American Revolution, was noted for his representation of slaves who were suing their masters for manumission. Through his efforts as Massachusetts Attorney General and then acting Attorney General during much of Robert Treat Payne's tenure, the legal precedent for the demise of slavery in Massachusetts was established. During the years 1781 to 1783, in three related cases now known as the Quack Walker cases, the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court applied the principle of judicial review to effectively abolish slavery by declaring it incompatible with the newly adopted state constitution in 1783. While this did not immediately free all slaves in Massachusetts, it did let slave owners know that slavery would no longer be a legally protected status or yeah, legally protected in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And rather than face the lawsuits, slave owners chose to replace enslavement with arrangements like indentured servitude or conventional employment. As a result, Massachusetts is the only state that had zero slaves enumerated on their 1790 federal census. Mary Sylvina Burkhart was of Dutch, African, and English descent on both sides but she was still considered a Negro legally. Her mixed race ancestry also speaks to Massachusetts more fluid racial caste system, which is similar to Louisiana prior to the 1840s and 50s. Both states had a higher than average number of free people of color prior to the Civil War, and these free people of color were usually of uh, mixed Native American, African, and European ancestry, and they lived in communities called tri-isolate communities, so I read this book, I can't remember the name of it, about those tri-isolate communities, or maybe it was like a, an article in the Atlantic. That's what it was. It was an article in the Atlantic about America before the highway system and how it was a, um, how it was like a network, a patchwork of tri-isolate communities and sometimes isolated black communities, isolated European communities of like European immigrants in say like Minnesota where everybody spoke Swedish or German or Norwegian up until like the 1950s when the highway system uh, in a lot of cases went right through some of these communities. And in other cases, it brought a more homogenous type of Americanness to the country where before, you know, you, a person might be born and raised and die within the same 50 square miles. And, you know, if you're in a community where everybody is still speaking French, like that was my grandmother's first language and she was born and raised in Louisiana because prior to the 19, I would say 30s, people primarily spoke Louisiana French or uh, Louisiana Creole. And then you had communities like there was in here in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, where you had people who were of this mixed Native American and European and African ancestry, and they didn't live under Jim Crow. And there, there was no like walking in the back door of a building or anything like that, because well, you didn't have any elites coming from like the federal government or anywhere or the state house telling you that you had to. 
So W.E.B. Du Bois' maternal great-great-grandfather was named Tom Burghardt, and he was a slave born in West Africa in the 1730s and kidnapped from Guinea around the age of 13 to 15. He took the surname of his master, the Dutch colonist Conrad Burghardt, and he gained his freedom by fighting in the Continental Army during the American Revolution. His grandson, Othello Burghardt, was Mary's father and W.E.B. Du Bois' grandfather. Like many free black people in the late 19th and early 20th century, uh, Du Bois claimed claimed to be descended from Elizabeth Freeman. And this is important for two reasons. One, Elizabeth Freeman was notable amongst free black people because she was the first enslaved African-American to file and win a lawsuit in Massachusetts. Her case, Brom and Bett versus Ashley in 1781, was cited in the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court appellate review of the Quack Walker freedom suit, which was argued successfully by Benjamin Kent. When the court upheld Walker's freedom under the state's constitution, the ruling was considered to have implicitly ended slavery in Massachusetts, and thus Elizabeth Freeman was known as the mother of freedom amongst Black people in Massachusetts. The second reason that claiming dissent from her was so important was that although slavery had been ruled inconsistent with the Massachusetts constitution, again, it did not automatically make Negroes in the state a free person. So free black people had a burden of proof that they probably constantly had to, you know, reinforce and defend. And that was most easily proven through your lineage. If your grandmother was free, then it was more likely that your parents had been free, which meant it was more likely that you had also lived your life as a free black person. So a lot of free black people before the Civil War, because again, you know, the Fugitive Slave Act was a federal act, which meant despite Massachusetts being a free state, they had a they had to, you know, adhere to it. And that's what happened in the Solomon Northrop case. He was a free black man with a free black family in Massachusetts or Rhode Island or somewhere up there. And through the Fugitive Slave Act, he was able to be tricked into being sold into slavery because it was not your freedom was really the burden of proof was on you. And if the white people that you were pleading your case to didn't care, then you spent 12 years as a slave like he did. So. A lot of free black people before the Civil War claimed descent from Elizabeth Freeman because, well, hers is like enshrined in Commonwealth law and obviously all of her descendants were free. Regardless of proof, though, like I said, it was common for free people of color in Massachusetts and other free states to be kidnapped and sold south like Solomon Northrop. Fun or maybe not so fun fact One of Elizabeth Freeman's many decisions is the actor Johnny Depp. He has always claimed to have Native American ancestry on his father's side, which was a common thing for like tan white people who didn't want to have to deal with the accusations of being partially black. And a lot of, a lot of high profile white people throughout history have had to deal with that. Um, Warren G. Harding. Warren G. Harding had like serious accusations of, oh, he's actually black. And I think in Ohio, it's like a common thing to just jokingly call him the actual first black president. 
because Ohio was a free state where a lot of Southern slave owners would send their biracial children. And then those biracial children would get together. And so there's a, there, there were tri-isolate communities in Ohio as well, especially in the area where Warren G. Harding was from. And he was a little, he was a little on the tan side. Yeah. He had a little, he had a little Cajun color, color into him. I'm not going to lie. And, uh, Eisenhower, Dwight Eisenhower, when he was running for president and even before that, his mother, who was adopted by a German family, but she also claimed to have German descent, but her earliest birth certificate listed her as a mulatto, not because she had a black parent, but because one of her parents had a black parent. So that's the kind of stuff. And also uh, Abraham Lincoln, because he was so tall and he kind of had like a duskiness to his complexion. There were accusations made that he was of Negro descent as well. Now, uh, what's that guy that did black in uh, North America? And he does that show where he tells white celebrities who they're descended from. I can't remember his name, but you know who I'm talking about. He uh, wrote this really interesting article about how a lot of both black, how a lot of both black and white Americans falsely claim Native American heritage when the reality is those black people probably have more white heritage than they do Native, and those white people probably have more black heritage than they do Native. Um, and he laid out the reasons for that, like a lot of the European admixture in African Americans is due to slave rape. So that's not really something that you want to promote and hype up and not something that you'd really be proud of. So when you come out, when you come out the womb with a looser texture of hair, lighter skin, you know, lighter color eyes or what have you, people would rather make up Native American ancestry then admit, yeah, there was a lot of uh, slave rape going on in my family tree. White people, in addition to, of course, you know, if you admitted to having African ancestry, that was pretty much like a career killer and you'd be ostracized from white society and all the privileges that came with that. They also had a very concerted effort to falsely claim indigeneity because, well, they feel really guilty for their genocide of Native Americans. So false claiming indigeneity is a way of making yourself the real indigenous people, which is so messed up. But yeah, Johnny Depp's father was a little on the swarthier side. So they claimed Native American heritage on that side of the family. Now, Johnny Depp is from Kentucky originally. And in Kentucky and Tennessee and in those those Appalachian areas, there's a group of people called Melungeons who are one of those tri-isolates. And the Lumbee Indians are another group that is what you would consider a tri-isolate. Mixed Native American, European, and African heritage. And so... It's very possible that he is that his dad had some Melungian ancestry, which would explain their looks. Fiona Apple is another uh, person of Melungian descent through her father, and that kind of explains like why she looks like a female Ty Dolla Sign. So Johnny Depp may very well have Native American. I'm not saying he does or he doesn't. 
but he does need to chill out with his uh, Plains Indian appropriation, though. But he is absolutely directly descended from Elizabeth Freeman as well. He doesn't ever talk about that, despite that descent being like well-documented and like I said, direct. Another fun fact, the lawyer who argued Elizabeth Freeman's case, Theodore Sedgwick, is the fourth great-grandfather of actress Kyra Sedgwick, which she learned on that show with that guy whose face I can see. He was at the beer summit, but I just cannot think of his name. Anyway, on his father's side, Dr. Du Bois' paternal great-grandfather was James Du Bois of Poughkeepsie, New York, a French Huguenot, ew, who fathered several children with slave women, uh, because of course he did, on multiple Caribbean islands. So this guy was just like going around to different Caribbean islands, knocking chicks up, and then just dipping on them. One of the children he dipped on was Alexander Du Bois, who was born on Long Key in the Bahamas in 1803. Alexander worked and traveled in Haiti as an adult, where he fathered a son with a Haitian woman who he named Alfred. And by the time Alfred was three, Alexander Du Bois had did like his daddy did and left Haiti for Connecticut, leaving young Alfred and his mother behind in Haiti. Alfred understandably hated his father. And so bucking the tradition, uh, he stopped pronouncing his his name as Dubois because it was Dubois until Alfred decided, you know what? Fuck the Dubois. What have any of those Dubois ever done for me? And so he said that he was going to pronounce his name as Dubois. He passed on that bitterness about, you know, having a shit heel for a dad to his son, William Edward Burkhart Dubois. And this is why the Dubois family of Great Barrington, Massachusetts, pronounced it Dubois and not Dubois as it is usually pronounced. Now, segregation was not the norm in rural Massachusetts during this period. And so free black people might sometimes have their own schools, churches, and public spaces, but sometimes they did not. And this was the case in Great Barrington. The town had a mostly European American demographic and the few African American families that lived there were fairly integrated into society. Du Bois had white schoolmates and teachers in his youth, but he did experience interpersonal racism and other stigmatization due to his father leaving the family when he was young. Oh, Alfred, break the cycle, man. Now, most of uh, William Du Bois teachers recognized his intellect and they told him that he could utilize it to empower other African-Americans. When he graduated from Searles, Searles, I guess, high school in 1885, the first congregational church of Great Barrington raised the money for his college tuition. Chapter two, Fisk, Harvard, and the University of Berlin. Although Du Bois had experienced interpersonal racism growing up in Massachusetts, it wasn't until he came to Nashville, Tennessee to attend Fisk University, a historically black college, that he experienced Jim Crow racism, which was systemic and codified and incredibly violent. Jim Crow laws were state and local laws that enforced racial segregation in the Southern US and elsewhere within the country. These laws were the result of a violent backlash against the material and political gains that black people made during the reconstruction era. When the white Southern democratic uh, state legislatures regained control in the 1870s, 
They enacted these laws specifically to disenfranchise African Americans and in the Western states and territories, Native Americans. Uh, Portland, um, not Portland, but the entire state of Oregon uh, after the Civil War was founded by Ku Klux Klan members and former Confederates who wanted like a whites only paradise. And they specifically founded Oregon as a Jim Crow state. So it wasn't just in the South. Jim Crow laws were reinforced in the Supreme Court cases such as Plessy versus Ferguson of 1896, which established a separate but equal legal doctrine for both public and private facilities. In 1954, the segregation of public schools was declared unconstitutional by the U.S. Supreme Court under Chief Justice Earl Warren in the landmark case Board versus the Brown of Education. But legal segregation, uh, legal desegregation took decades to occur in most states and de facto segregation still continues today with inherent biases and some outmoded business practices continuing the disenfranchisement of African-Americans and other minorities. Generally, the remaining Jim Crow laws were overturned, overruled rather by the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Du Bois, like most of the other students at Fisk, had to rely on itinerant work and intermittent teaching to support his university studies. Du Bois taught school during the summer of 1886 after his sophomore year, and his travels throughout the South exposed him to Southern racism, including lynchings. In addition to teaching, Du Bois kept a pretty busy schedule at Fisk. That included editing his college newspaper where he regularly challenged Jim Crow and asked his fellow students what they could do and how they could use their education to end Jim Crow and improve the lives of African-Americans. His time editing the newspaper at Fisk would greatly shape his time as editor of the crisis many years later. After he graduated from Fisk with his bachelor's degree in 1888, he was accepted into Harvard College, now Harvard University, but he had to be accepted as an undergraduate student because at the time, Harvard did not accept credits from HBCUs. He ended up getting a second bachelor's degree that he had to pay for himself and then a master's degree and then became the first black PhD to ever matriculate through Harvard. While at Harvard, Du Bois was strongly influenced by the philosophy of William James, a prominent American philosopher. In addition to being a philosopher, James was a historian and psychologist and the first educator to offer psychology courses in the United States. He's also known as the father of American psychology. Along with Charles Sanders Peirce, James established the philosophical school known as pragmatism and is also cited as one of the founders of functional psychology. Pragmatism is a philosophical tradition that considers words and thoughts as tools and instruments for prediction, problem solving, and action, and rejects the idea that the function of thought is to describe, represent, or mirror reality. Pragmatists contend that most philosophical topics, such as the nature of knowledge, language, concepts, meaning, belief, and science, are all best viewed in terms of their practical uses and successes, which is an extremely utilitarian Benthamite approach to thought processes. And sure enough, when I looked up William James, he was a diehard Benthamite. So that's all just a little too Protestant for my taste, but y'all can do what you want. Now, as he had at Fisk, Du Bois paid his way through three years at Harvard with money from summer jobs and inheritance, scholarships, and loans from friends. In 1890, he was awarded with his second bachelor's degree in history with cum laude honor, uh, 
cum laude honors. And he began his master's study on a scholarship in the sociology program the following year. In 1892, Du Bois received a fellowship from the John F. Slater Fund for the Education of Freedmen to attend the University of Berlin for graduate work. Now, I took a little bit of issue with that because this is the John F. Slater Fund for the Education of Freedmen. W.E.B. Du Bois was what, like a third generation? Like you're not a freedman, so why did you? Anyway, though. The Slater Fund was a financial endowment established in 1882 by John Fox Slater, who was an American philanthropist and industrialist from Rhode Island. And it was for the education of African-Americans in the Southern United States. Now, like I said, I felt some kind of way when I learned what the Slater Fund was explicitly for, which was freedmen from the South who had either been slaves or whose parents had been slaves, neither of which applied to W.E.B. Du Bois. And on top of that, Du Bois traveled throughout the South while he was a student at Fisk. So he knew firsthand that on top of the financial barriers that usually prevented newly freed African-Americans from attaining higher education, Jim Crow created another even higher barrier to that education. That's also something that he did not have to deal with. And I just feel like you can't go around talking about lifting as we climb, which I know is a Mary Church Terrell quote, so please don't cuss me. But then, you know, more privileged African-Americans, rather than reach back and lift up, take those opportunities for themselves. Like I know in all your, in all your time that you spent in at Fisk and other places throughout the South, like you met somebody who could have also benefited from that fun but you know he's been dead for many years so it's just not even worth talking about I guess and also we're not really dealing with the more enlightened race and class conscious W.E.B. Du Bois at this point uh we're dealing with the slightly insufferable brown noser who never met a white man's dime that he wouldn't grovel for grad student W.E.B. Du Bois and I and I have like the utmost respect for him or I wouldn't be doing this series. But like at this stage in life, he was an insufferable high yellow dandy who would borrow more money than he needed and spend it on clothes. And like I said, at this stage, he was pretty much every guy on HBCU campuses who dresses like Farnsworth Bentley and talks about black people like Clarence Thomas. Or the people who tweet, I'm not why I'm not talking like I'm white. I'm just extremely intelligent and also unable to move on from being in the gifted and talented program 20 years ago. So thank God that W.E.B. Du Bois lived a very long life and thus was able to grow out of that stage. May any and all 40-year-old men and women still wearing Greek paraphernalia to business casual events eventually follow his example. Seriously. You're stuck. You're a victim. Mini drag number one, thus complete, I now move on to W.E.B. Du Bois' experiences as a grad student in Berlin, which were particularly relevant for me because I, too, am an HBCU graduate who attended a graduate school in Berlin. The Universität zu Berlin, now called Humboldt Universität zu Berlin, was established in 1809 by Koenig Frederick Wilhelm the third of Prussia. It's one of the younger universities in Germany, but it is the oldest of Berlin's four universities. 
It was regarded as the world's preeminent university for the natural sciences during the 19th and 20th century. And the university is linked to major breakthroughs in physics and other sciences through its tenure of professors like Albert Einstein, who also taught in, at, at an HBCU in the 1940s, Lincoln University in Pennsylvania. So I feel like there's both German universities seeking to attract more foreign talent and HBCUs seeking to partner with foreign universities and that grant money should capitalize on this apparent HBCU to German university pipeline that I'm kind of envisioning here. But that grant proposal may come later offline. It's on my to-do list right after I join all these alumni associations and pay all that money, Lord. Anyway, regarding the character of the Universität zu Berlin, it was, as I mentioned, founded by Frederick Wilhelm III of Prussia, who was, by most accounts, shy and indecisive, but who was particularly devoted to the reform and unification of Prussia's Protestant churches to homogenize their liturgy, organization, and architecture. His long-term goal was to fully centralize royal control of all the Protestant churches in the Prussian Union of Churches. And so while he was whipping the Protestants of Prussia into shape, his wife, Konigin Louise of Mecklenburg-Strelitz, you know, Mecklenburg-Strelitz has produced some pretty like prodigious and very effective and capable queens. I'm thinking of Queen Charlotte. She was also from Mecklenburg-Strelitz. And she was also a very like, intelligent and worldly woman who served as a unofficial advisor to her idiot husband. And so Louise of Mecklenburg-Strelitz was the brains of her family operation as well. And she was uh, the king's closest informal advisor. And as such, she advised him to number one, grow a pair of balls and take on Napoleon. And number two, cultivate the growing sense of German ethnic and political identity that was, you know, growing in the German speaking lands. Cause there was no like Germany as a singular political entity as there is now around this time, there was Prussia and there was Austria and there was duchies and Margaret sprinkled throughout you know, Europe and stuff. You had a little Hesse here, a little Baden there, a little Wittenberg there, but there was no Germany, so to speak. But because of Napoleon, Western nationalism was becoming a thing in Germany and the Italian states, Greece, everywhere. And so she told him, you know, you need to jump on this opportunity in order to make sure that Prussia is spearheading this effort to become a unified Germany. Because you had, you know, other German principalities, Saxony, Hamburg, Baden, Württemberg, Hesse, and their biggest, uh, I would, I guess, internal rival would be Bavaria all the dukes and archdukes and princes in these kingdoms also wanted their family and their territory to become the center of this new unified Germany. So she said to cultivate this by being the patron of a university that would then spread a Prussian-centric 
sense of German identity throughout Germany, which if you know anything about Prussians does explain a great deal of late 19th century and early 20th century German and their politics, which were incredibly one, anti-Semitic and two, warlike. By the 1890s, when W.E.B. Du Bois attended the University of Berlin, the unification mission was complete and World War was still about two decades away, the first one. So now the mission of the university, subtle though it was, was to project the German higher education system as being on par with countries like Great Britain and France. Now, having the first Negro to ever get a PhD from Harvard, attend your university for grad school, well, he wasn't that guy yet. But having, you know, this super smart and articulate Negro from Massachusetts who goes to Harvard, attend your school, made uh, Prussian Germany, the Prussian-centric German empire seem like a much more progressive uh, place to, you know, live and work and educate yourself that did not necessarily square with the reality of what the Kaiserreich's actual attitudes were towards people of African descent. African-Americans who travel abroad, in particular those who travel to Europe, tend to romanticize their time in these countries. And I include myself in this. I personally was just blown away by how much cheaper it seemed to be to live and work in Berlin versus like American cities of comparable size, like the one that I live in now. But it wasn't until much later that I, you know, came to the realization that this was achieved through the marginalization of Berlin's underclasses who essentially keep the city operating. These people are usually immigrants, some from poorer countries in Europe and others from the developing world. And it's through their exploitation via depressed wages that I was able to maneuver through the city on my, you know, converted U.S. dollars, marveling at how inexpensive everything was. Inexpensive, of course, being relative. It's one thing to convert pounds sterling or U.S. dollars to euros. It's another thing to come from a war-torn, poor, small country that Europeans deem insignificant. And, you know, you're trying to take your meager savings, convert it into way less euros and make a living that way. So for W.E.B. Du Bois, who, mind you, spent more of his life amongst like liberal white northerners and not paternalistic and violent white southern democrats, his recollections of Berlin are of a sort of are as a sort of racial paradise where he doesn't have to be cognizant of his blackness at all times. And he describes it this way, he says, I found myself on the outside of the American world looking in. With me were white folks, students, acquaintances, teachers who viewed the scene with me. They did not always pause to regard me as a curiosity or something subhuman. I was just a man of the somewhat privileged student rank with whom they were glad to meet and talk over the world, particularly the part of the world from whence I came. Now, this is kind of rich for him to say when the Berlin conference was not even a decade old. It was only eight, only eight years prior the Berlin conference had happened and the Germans had colonized and would later perpetuate a genocide against the Herero and Namaqua peoples of what was then called German Southwest Africa and is now known as Namibia. The reason why Germans were so keen to treat Du Bois as a peer and an equal rather than how they routinely treated Africans in Namibia, Ghana, Cameroon, other places 
was because more important to them than his race was his nationality. Europeans are always happy to discuss America's poor race relations, past and present, with Black people. But the conversation does tend to get a little bit more stilted when you start asking them how they treat Black people in their own countries, if they'll even admit to having any. And then, you know, when they start, when you start talking about colonialization, now don't nobody have nothing to say. Because we're Americans, and because most Americans travel and immigrate to Europe as educated middle-class people and not as like refugees or poor migrant workers were treated better than our black counterparts who come from elsewhere with maybe the exception of like black Brits because of the strength of the pound versus the Euro. And then like there are high profile black British people. So their identity because of the high visibility on the European continent and everybody tends to assume like Great Britain and France are the only two countries that even have black people. Maybe they get a little bit better treatment but you go to anywhere else and they will not even admit to having black people, much less having poor race relations. But they will always want to discuss American race relations with you. And that is just so that they can distract from the fact that you do have black people in your country and you treat them like shit. So Berlin is unfortunately not a post-racial paradise, as I discovered one night when I got off the train past Alexanderplatz. So Alexanderplatz is like, it's like the unofficial gateway to the former East Berlin, right? So there were a group of kids singing a song in German, which I had only just started learning, so I didn't know what they were saying. And I'm just sitting on the train, blissfully ignorant, just thinking that I'm living the good life in this post-racial paradise in Germany, of all places, And so when the kids got off the train, this elderly Russian man, and I know he was Russian because he said so, because I couldn't understand what the fuck he was saying, even though he was speaking English. Um, He said to me, it's very good that you don't know German or your feelings would have been really hurt right now. And then he told me what they were saying, which was uh, they were singing a fascist song and basically saying that they would like wear me as a coat. So... That moment really shattered my rose-colored glasses about race relations in Europe and forced me to see the truth of my and many other African-American situation, which is is as a token in a nutshell. Like Europeans tend to use middle-class educated Black Americans as tokens to project this image of European race relations being so much better than American race relations, when in reality, it's we're all being treated the same way everywhere you go. We all have similar, but not the exact same struggles. So adventures in tokenism thus completed, Du Bois returned to Harvard and completed his graduate studies in 1895, becoming the first African-American to earn a PhD from Harvard University. Chapter three. Wilberforce, UPenn, and the Philadelphia Negro. After graduating from Harvard, Dr. Du Bois, as he was henceforth known, fielded various offers of employment with institutions of higher education, including the Tuskegee Institute. He ended up accepting a teaching position at Wilberforce College, now known as Wilberforce University in Wilberforce, Ohio. 
Wilberforce is a private HBCU affiliated with the African Methodist Episcopal Church, AME, and holds the distinction of being the first college in the United States to be owned and operated by African-Americans. Wilberforce was founded in 1856 by a collaboration between the Cincinnati Conference of the Methodist Episcopal Church and the African Methodist Episcopal Church to provide classical education and teacher training for Black youths. If you'll recall from my Christianity series, the AME Church came into being in 1787 when Richard Allen, Absalom Jones, and other free Blacks in Philadelphia formally broke away from the Methodist Church because of racism and discrimination in church offices. Prior to the Civil War, the area around Wilberforce College had been settled by whites as a resort town because of the hot springs nearby. And as the college in the town gained prominence in the antebellum era, Southern Methodist planters began sending their mixed-race children to Wilberforce to be educated as well. Pre-Civil War, Wilberforce and many of its students and staff have been active in the abolition movement. In his two years at Wilberforce, W.E.B. Du Bois was influenced by the work and message of Alexander Crummel. Crummel was an African-American minister, academic, and African nationalist who moved to Liberia in 1853, where he worked to convert Africans to Christianity and educate them, as well as to persuade African-Americans uh, colonists of his ideas. He wanted to attract African-Americans to Ghana on what he considered a civilizing mission. Now, given what we now know about the relationship between the Americo-Liberians and the indigenous peoples, uh, namely that it was a facsimile of the racial hierarchy in the United States, I kind of wish Crummel and others had stayed home and worked with the freedmen in their own country. Nonetheless, Crummel's Black nationalist ideas influenced not only Du Bois, but also people like Marcus Garvey and Paul Lawrence Dunbar, who dubbed him the father of Pan-Africanism in 1903. Here is where we begin to see Du Bois' Pan-Africanist ideals start taking shape. This is also the time period where he began to formulate his concept of double consciousness. In August 1897, his article called Strivings of the Negro People was published in the Atlantic Monthly. In it, he states... It is a peculiar sensation, this double consciousness, this sense of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others, of measuring one's soul through the tape of a world that looks on in amused contempt and pity. One ever feels his two-ness, an American, a Negro, two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, two warring ideals in one dark body whose dogged strength alone keeps it from being torn asunder. The history of the American Negro is the history of this strife, this longing to attain self-conscious manhood, to merge his double self into a better and truer self. In this merging, he wishes neither of the older selves to be lost. He does not wish to Africanize America, for America has much to teach the world in Africa. He wouldn't bleach his Negro blood in a flood of white Americanism, for he knows that Negro blood has a message for the world. He simply wishes to make it possible for a man to be both a Negro and an American without being cursed and spit upon by his fellows, without having the doors of opportunity close roughly in his face. So double consciousness is the internal conflict experienced by subordinated or colonized groups in an oppressive society. Being but a small percentage of the whole, the overwhelming desire to conform 
is the natural tendency of the colonized and or subordinated, but part of their oppression is that they're denied the opportunity to both exist as what they are, which is as a minority, and to be allowed to fully assimilate and conform in all the other available areas. When this occurs, the tendency is to blame the aspect of oneself that has seemingly caused one's ostracization rather than challenge the society that one has been forcibly colonized into. The end goal for the oppressor is to make the oppressed believe that it is just and natural for them to be oppressed because once this belief is internalized, the oppressed will no longer strive to challenge anything that happens to them or the justification given, if any, as to why this has happened. Originally, double consciousness was specifically meant to evoke the psychological challenge that African-Americans experience where they were always looking at oneself through the eyes of a racist white society that considered their existence in America as a problem. When America was settled by the colonists, among their chief concerns besides food and shelter was how to establish dominance over the land that they were on. The systemic uh, sorry, systematic dismantling of Native American societies and political entities, along with the appropriation of Native names, history, lineage, and culture, was meant to effectively erase the Native American people in mind and in body from the land so that white settlers could establish themselves as the dominant and indeed only people in the Americas. Nowhere is that more evident than in the lineage of the Powhatan people, specifically Pocahontas' descendants. Pocahontas went to England with her husband, John Rolfe, to advocate for better treatment of the Powhatan people. So the Powhatan people largely chose the colonist side because the colonists brought them lots of money through the uh, trade of tobacco. And they were in a beef with other Algonquin-speaking peoples for dominance over the land. And since there weren't enough white people in that time period, 1600s, for uh, the white settlers to pose a real threat to the Powhatans at that time, Pocahontas married John Rolfe for the express purpose of giving her people a competitive edge over their enemies in you know that Virginia Tidewater area. She did not intend for all of her descendants to eventually be white people which is what happened. So now you have these people who do have an indigenous link to the land, but who live as white oppressive colonizers who don't work to, to you know, give the land back to Native Americans, but who use their Native American heritage to uphold white supremacist ideals. So that's uh, what I meant by like, basically absorbing, subsuming, taking on native identity, but for the express purposes of giving whiteness a deeper foothold in America. African slaves were brought over merely to be tools and instruments that aided in this entrenchment of white dominance. We were never actually meant to be autonomous beings with our own lives and destinies that did not uphold and aid white supremacy. After the Civil War, white people collectively didn't know what to do with uh, this, this surplus population of people who now wanted to do something other than service them and white supremacy. And 
I don't think I'd be reaching if I said that most of the history of race relations in the United States since the end of chattel slavery has been white people and white supremacy finding ways to convince us as black people that servicing them and white supremacy in the American empire is actually in our best interest and something that we should want to do. Before, it wasn't something that they even had to consider because we were slaves. Afterwards, we and our existence on the land that they had conquered were a problem that they are by and large still attempting to solve. The concept of double consciousness has influenced many other influential black sociologists and writers such as Paul Gilroy and France Fanon. Fanon was a Martinican psychiatrist and political philosopher who specialized in the fields of post-colonial studies, critical theory, and Marxism. Fanon was concerned with the psychopathology of colonization and the human, social, and cultural consequences of decolonization. Psychopathology is the study of abnormal cognition, behavior, and experiences, which differs according to social norms and rests upon a number of constructs that are deemed to be the social norm at any particular time and era. In his book, Black Skin, White Mass, Fanon, in the form of an autoethnography, shares his experiences through the lens of a historical critique of the effects of racism, dehumanization, and colonialism on his psyche through a process he calls the epidermalization of inferiority. Gilroy is a British historian, writer, and academic who applied theories of culture and race to the study and construction of African-American intellectual history. Well, not just African-American intellectual history, but Africans in the Americas. And, you know, not even then. Diasporic African intellectual history. There you go. Because he's British. In 1993, he published The Black Atlantic, Modernity and Double Consciousness, which is about a distinct Black Atlantic culture that incorporated elements from African, American, British, and Caribbean cultures. In the book, Gilroy asserts that Black identity is multifaceted and difficult to define due to the multinational position of Blackness. Gilroy utilizes the imagery of the slave ship to demonstrate the position of Black bodies between two or more lands, identities, cultures, etc., which are unable to be defined by borders. Additionally, Gilroy discusses how Western nationalism is a narrative created by whites that ties Western nationalism to whiteness and how this narrative inherently others black people that belong to the same national identity. In 1899, Dr. Du Bois published The Philadelphia Negro, a sociological study of African-Americans in Philadelphia. Du Bois intended to identify Philadelphia Blacks sociologically relevant social issues. Dr. Du Bois immersed himself in Black society in Philadelphia while collecting this survey data. He and his first wife, Nina Gomer, moved to the seventh ward of Philadelphia, an impoverished Black community that was mostly made up of freedmen from 1896 to 1897. Along with his assistant, Isabel Eaton, Dr. Du Bois conducted archival research, descriptive statistics, and questionnaires about the levels of employment and the kinds of occupations that people had, their health, their educational attainment, and the kind of education that they received, and the social and family lives. Dr. Du Bois and uh, Ms. Eaton were able to collect over 5,000 personal interviews, mostly by going door to door and attending church services and functions. 
The data was extensive and included census information about the number of black people in the city, their places of birth, the occupations, their age, sex, religious affiliation, and other data that had never before been compiled on a black population. Although the sample size was limited, Dr. Du Bois chose the Seventh Ward because of its socioeconomic diversity or relative socioeconomic diversity, rather. Uh, on the Western fringes it were occupied by affluent whites who had not fled that area of Philadelphia. The center was concentrated with the nation's densest concentration of affluent blacks at the time. So it's kind of like those couple of blocks in Harlem with all the elites. And then the Eastern edges were inhabited by poor blacks and poor whites who were usually recent European immigrants from like Ireland and, and the Baltic states and stuff like that. The Eastern side of the seventh war was considered America's first black ghetto. After carefully mapping every black residence, church and business in the seventh war and recording the occupational and family structure, Dr. Du Bois reformulated his concept of race, deducing that, the Negro problem looked at is looked at in one way, but the old world questions of ignorance, poverty, crime, and the dislike of the stranger. So in this, he's referring to the European concept of ghettos, where outsiders such as Jews and Romani were often forced to live and struggle economically. At the time that Dr. Du Bois was right, conducting his study, the Dreyfus Affair was going on in France, where a French military officer of Jewish descent, Captain Alfred Dreyfus, was convicted of treason and imprisoned in Devil's Island on French Guiana for five years. In France, the Jews had been emancipated since the French Revolution. And that was um, the second emancipation of the Jews. 500 years prior, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth had emancipated the Jews and also given them a lot of autonomy. So you had like Jewish cities within the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. I talk about that in my fantasy series in the episode on The Witcher. So, um, yeah, the Jews in France were like the second oldest emancipated Jewish community, but where the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth Jews had their own like cities and, and concentrations and stuff like that and protections under the law, the French have always been uh, promoters of assimilation. So you have to accept whatever their, your, you know, their post-revolutionary ideals of lassity, which is uh, secularism and, you know, all that stupid tricolor stuff that they be talking about. It's all bullshit. But, you know, basically the French replaced the deification of the Catholic God with the deification of the state. And they really and truly think that they are democratic beings. Nothing is sadder. But anyway, so being emancipated meant that they were no longer subject to the wide range of restrictions that had been imposed on them since the early Middle Ages which included where they could live and what occupations that they could have. So it was kind of like a European form of Jim Crow. Captain Dreyfus had been convicted based on forged documentation and only after the French writer Emile Zola's open letter, J'accuse, stoked a growing movement of support for Dreyfus did the government reopen the case. 
The Dreyfus Affair had laid bare the limits of Jewish emancipation and the underlying anti-Semitic attitudes that still prevail in French society, attitudes that often prevented Jews from fully attaining economic and social parity with non-Jews in France. The intense political and judicial scandal of the Dreyfus Affair divided French society between those who supported Dreyfus, who were called Dreyfusards, such as Sarah Bernhardt, Anatole France, Henri Poincaré, and Georges Clemenceau, and those who condemned him, who were called anti-Dreyfusards, such as Edouard Drummond, the director and publisher of the anti-Semitic newspaper La Libre Parole which folded after the Vichy government fell in France in the 1940s, but the spirit of La Libre Parole lives on in anti-Semitic and Islamophobic magazines such as Charlie Hebdo. The findings of Dr. Dubois' Philadelphia research revealed a diverse community with potential for advancement, yet it also revealed that this potential was tempered by poverty, crime, and lack of education. Addressing this contradiction, Dr. Du Bois explained that within the black population, there existed an internal class structure with a submerged 10th who were not, as he put it, above economic viability. He did not think that the black population of Philadelphia should be judged by this submerged 10th. Also, the Negro problem was not a singular problem, but rather a plexus of social problems and had less correlation to a black social pathology than to whites enforcement of racial discrimination and a provision of unequal opportunity. Dr. Du Bois emphasized that racial discrimination excluded black people from the more lucrative industrial jobs, which were also unionizing for better pay and conditions around this time as a means of keeping black workers out of certain professions. He also emphasized the prevalence of single parent homes, which I found so interesting because of what he did with that. So in 1899, in Du Bois research, roughly 40% of black families in this seventh ward area of Philadelphia were headed by a matriarch, meaning the primary breadwinner of the family was a black woman. Since women are more likely to be paid less than their male counterparts, and black people are more likely to be paid less than their white counterparts, a black woman is more likely to be the least paid while being the head of 40 to 70% of black households, depending on what year you're pulling your research from. This statistic, I also would like to point out that considering that the bulk of the black people in the 7th Ward were freedmen, meaning a generation prior they had, all been slaves, there has really never been a time in American history where black households were not primarily and predominantly matriarchal. Never been a thing. The white male dominated patriarchy where women were relegated to the kitchen and men brought home all the bacon and thus made all the rules. Never been a thing in our societies. And rather than just, you know, I don't know, embrace what we got going on and make the best of it, we've spent the last 200 and some odd years trying to make our communities resemble our oppressors' communities. And how is that working out for us? So here's what Dr. Du Bois, the, the, the conclusion that he came to back in 1899, mind you, this man is the pioneer of sociological research 
on black populations in the United States. So Dr. Du Bois came to those conclusions that basically African-American households are traditionally and predominantly matriarchal for a variety of reasons. But since we have been a mostly free people, that has been the case. So this statistic, you know, it's been bandied about for about 100 years now as a means to exhort black women to marry or for black men to attain more education so they could get better jobs. But in 1899, Dr. Du Bois' solution, because he recognizes that the shortest distance between two points is a straight line, his solution to the poverty that was produced by severely underpaying the women who were the head of so many black households was to, check this out, just pay them more. You want to alleviate poverty in black communities? Pay black women more because they head most of the families. I mean, it's so straightforward and crazy that of course, of course it works. Just pay them fairly for the work that they do. He also encouraged black women in Philadelphia to attain more education both before and after becoming the heads of these households. He basically said like, this is what we're working with. So let's just make the best of it. Now, in the 122 years since the Philadelphia Negro, we've had the Moynihan Report and everything else try to suss out the reason why so many black households are one led by women and two low income. And what should be done about this? Rather than listen to the man whose research was the first of its kind and pioneered the Chicago School of Sociological Study and Thought, modern day black thought leaders have latched on to notions of that same black pathology that Dr. Du Bois said was not a thing. It's not, there's nothing pathologically wrong with us. It's racism. He said this in 1899, folks. 1899. That's 122 years ago. And for whatever reason, everybody's acting like they still don't know, like, what should we do? Well, Dr. Du Bois told you what to do. He said, it's not a black pathology. It's fucking racism. But they've latched onto that black pathology that he goddamn told you not to latch onto. And he called it a distraction. And he said, you want to alleviate poverty in black communities. You want to take this submerged 10th and elevate them and make their material circumstances and their outcomes and their children's outcomes and their children's children's outcomes better. You know what you ought to do? Pay black women more money. Just give them more money. That's it. That's all. That's all you had to do. Let's just give me some more money. Dr. Bois also noted how racial discrimination contributed to substandard housing amongst black people in Philadelphia. He found that African-Americans had to pay abnormally high rents for the poorest accommodations and race prejudice accentuates this difficulty out of which many evils grow. But again, I would like to reiterate that in 1899, Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois, the first black person to receive a PhD from Harvard University, probably one of the smartest black people ever born, said, pay black women more money. 
it would fix up a lot of everybody's problems if you just paid black women more money. And for that, damn it, I'm put him on my friender. That's an ancestor. While working on the Philadelphia Negro, Dr. Du Bois participated in the inaugural American Negro Academy, which was founded in Washington, D.C. in 1897. It was the first organization in the United States founded to support African-American academic scholarship, and it operated until 1928 and encouraged African-Americans to undertake classical academic studies and liberal arts studies. Its members included men like Blanche K. Bruce, the first elected African-American senator to serve a full term. Hiram Revels of Mississippi was the first, but he did not serve a full term. You know, Mississippi was on fire in the years after the Civil War. Like they was really getting to the bag. Paul Lawrence Dunbar and Dr. Kelly Miller, who the first was the first African-American to attend a graduate program at Johns Hopkins University, were also founding members. The ANA was intended to provide support to African-Americans working in classic scholarship and the arts and W.E.B. Du Bois as the first black Harvard Ph.D. in the area of sociology was its poster boy, so to speak. Uh, The antithesis to the ANA was Booker T. Washington's approach, which he promoted at the Tuskegee Institute in Alabama at Tuskegee. Washington emphasized vocational and industrial training for the mostly freedmen population of the segregated Deep South, which he thought was a more practical and relevant solution to improving their lives. Now, personally, as a dialectical and historical materialist, I think that they both were right. Learning classical studies when the majority of the work in the area in which you live revolves around having technical and agricultural skills, which, mind you, none of us eat if these Black people don't have those technical and agricultural skills. It doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. You you need to know, like, how to fix, you know, machinery and animal husbandry and all the other myriad things. I was an agricultural business major for two semesters. It kicked my ass. Don't let anybody tell you that farming is easy stuff. It's highly technical. You have to be highly skilled. It's not something that everybody can do. And again, if you don't have those highly specialized, highly technical, highly skilled people doing it, we don't eat as a country. So it was really important to have this. Like, Owning hogs and and growing watermelons lifted entire black communities out of poverty in one generation. So, I mean, these industrial cast your buckets where you are type skills, they, they weren't anything to sneeze at. And so, you know, you don't really need to know how to spit Homer's Iliad in the original Greek when you got to feed the damn country. But the classical studies, I think, are important as well. I mean, and I have a classical liberal arts education. I think it's important as well because for a well-wounded populace, you know, it's important to know your history for yourself and to not have your oppressor telling you everything that you know about yourself and about the world in general, because they are going to have a vested interest in not giving you the entire truth. And you don't want to learn everything that you know about everything from your oppressor. I mean, they're the bad guy. In the August 8, 1897 issue of the Atlantic Monthly, 
Dr. Du Bois published Strivings of the Negro People, a paper where he rejected Frederick Douglass's pleas for African-Americans to reject separatism and aspire for assimilation into white society. So, you know, when I was talking about the Dreyfus Affair, the Dreyfus Affair was one of the catalysts for the modern Zionist movement. Uh, Ted or Herzl didn't start it, but he was living in, I want to say, Austria at the time, which was a little bit behind France on the emancipation front. And so the Dreyfus Affair really demonstrated to the Jews of Europe the limits of assimilation and just how far a Jew could become a fully assimilated, fully normalized member of any European society while maintaining their Jewishness. And so something similar was happening in the United States, especially after the Reconstruction era, when the Southern Democrats basically attempted to turn back the clock and remove the gains that African-Americans had been making during the Reconstruction era. So a lot of Black people were like, well, then fuck this American project then. I'm just going to find me a little plot of land somewhere and we could just figure this shit out without you. I don't even fucking like you like that. I didn't even ask to be here, to be quite honest with you. Um, So you had people like Frederick Douglass, which he kind of, I mean, he maintained this faith in the American project that I have never had. So I don't know how somebody born a slave could have it. But I'm also not religious, and he definitely was. And I feel like that plays a good part of it. Um, at one point, he wanted the U.S. government to annex Santo Domingo, which is present-day Dominican Republic, so that African-Americans could settle there. But then he kind of like changes his mind about that. And there were these uh, groups of people, African-Americans, who were relocating to like states like Kansas and Nebraska and Iowa, uh, which some of them were states and some of them were territories, but they were relocating to these places and they were called exodus, exodizers, exodusters. So they were escaping the Klan and the Jim Crow laws and the lynchings and all that type of stuff so that they could, Uh, move to, they could start these all black towns and communities and have greater levels of freedom and autonomy and safety. So Frederick Douglass was against the back to Africa movement um, because he thought it, it resembled the African colonization society that he had opposed when he was younger because, which is odd and a little bit hypocritical because you're the same guy that wanted to annex Santo Domingo. But I have to wonder if that annexation was like something he was doing in concert with like the Haitian administration under Boyer, because he was charged the affairs in, I want to say the 18, well, Boyer was out of office by 18 and dead by 1850, but subsequent administrations had a heavy Boyer influence. So maybe it had something to do with Haiti's repeated attempts to dominate the entire island. Maybe not. I'm not going to speculate because I'm not talking about Frederick Douglass in this series anyway. But yeah, 
And he correctly predicted, though, that racist whites would eventually take over Kansas and its government and put the exodusters in the same predicament that they had just left in the Deep South, which is exactly what happened. To say nothing of the challenges that they would face settling on these Native American lands. And he was right about that, too. In 1892, at an Indianapolis conference convened by Bishop Henry McNeil Turner, Douglas spoke out against the separatist movements, urging blacks to stick it out. And he made similar speeches in 1879 and was criticized by both fellow black leaders and some of his audiences who even booed him for this position. I mean, it was really, really bad. You know, the lynchings and, and the and the Klan and, and all that type of stuff. And he's like, oh, no, just stick it out. Like, hell no, man, you got one time to burn something on my line, baby. I'm getting the fuck out of Dodge. I don't have time for this. So I get it i really do and i i love the 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 zionism parallels there like the end of reconstruction was a really loud and alarming wake-up call to to african americans at that time that there was only so much assimilating that they were going to be able to do in this country and that should they step out of line one centimeter it could get real bloody real quick. And so they wanted to, they wanted their own shit, which I mean, it makes sense, right? So yeah, Douglas was getting booed because assimilating was not really what anybody was trying to hear in the 1890s. Like we tried that And all it took was for liberal Republicans in Congress in the 1870s to get a case of cold feet and boom, it was all over. It was all a dream. I used to wake up reading the crisis magazine type stuff. So in Baltimore, 1894, Frederick Douglass said, I hope and trust that all will come out right in the end. Uh, Narrator, it doesn't. But the immediate future looks dark and troubled. I cannot shut my eyes to the ugly facts before me. Now, in response to him and the strivings of the Negro people, Dr. Du Bois wrote, We are Negroes, members of a vast historic race that from the very dawn of creation has slept but half awakening in the dark forests of its African fatherland. In this... He urged African-Americans to embrace their African heritage while acknowledging that slavery had made them a distinct people within the diaspora. So this is like the seeds of the self-determination movement, right? We're Africans, but we're African-Americans. We are our own distinct people and we need our own distinct place in the sun. Dr. Du Bois feared that if African-Americans did not define their ethnicity for themselves early. It would be forever defined by slavery and nothing else, which he likened, he likened it to walking around half awake. It was important to him that black Americans perceive themselves as having a history linked to Africa that predated slavery while acknowledging, of course, that they were for better or worse and an an American ethnic group, essentially. In July, 1897, W.E.B. Du Bois concluded his research in Philadelphia and took a teaching position in history and economics at Atlanta University, which is now called Clark Atlanta University and HBCU in Atlanta. 
He continued to refine the Philadelphia Negro study and published it in 1899, as I've said before. As the 20th century dawned on Black America, W.E.B. Du Bois entered the busiest era of his long and storied career, producing numerous social science papers and hosting the Atlanta Conference of Negro Problems. He also received grants from the U.S. government to prepare reports about African-American workforce and culture and got into this big feud with Booker T. Washington, or did he? I'll get into that next episode. So yes, next episode, W.E.B. Du Bois will expand on his talented and submerged 10 theories as well as throw his hat in the Pan-Africanist ring, leading to the first Pan-African conference. The defining work of this era is his 1903 book, The Souls of Black Folk. Join me next time for more Musings on History.